try to imagine for 1,500 years living under the law of Moses as a tradition. The law of Moses, the law of Moses, the law of Moses. Your whole life was built upon the law of Moses. If you wanted to know God, you had to convert to Judaism. You had to be circumcised if you were male. You, you would, through circumcision, that would obligate you to obey the entire law of Moses, would train your family to follow the law. Deuteronomy 6 talks about fathers, you know, raise your children to know the law of Moses when you sit with them, when you walk with them. Their whole life was centered on the law of Moses. And all of a sudden, the cross changed everything. Where Jesus said, this is the new covenant given in my blood. In Ephesians, we learn that the old covenant of law has been abolished. And we learn in Hebrews that the new covenant of grace is now what's active. And imagine being given the assignment to break that news to people who've been under the law for 1,500 years. You've been given the mandate. You've been given the responsibility to go break the news that the old covenant is no longer in effect and the new covenant is how we relate to God. Jesus gave initially that assignment to his 12 disciples in the upper room. When he was with them, he said, this is my blood given for the new covenant. This is my body given for the new covenant. Meaning that the old covenant has now been abolished and set aside. The old covenant had within it the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah talked about the new covenant that was coming. The Ezekiel, the spirit of Christ in our heart, or the spirit of God in our hearts. So here's Paul given this revelation by the ascended Jesus of a word that had only been used five times before the cross. And it was the word grace. That before the cross, the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, was only used five times. John chapter 1 contains several of those. Jesus, full of grace. You know, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Grace upon grace upon grace. Luke chapter 6 uses the word grace. Jesus says the word charis several times. The translators don't put the word grace in there, but it really should be in there because it is the word charis that Jesus uses the word grace. But it's only used a minimal amount of times before the cross. After the cross, the word grace is used over 150 times. Grace is what happened at the cross. The majority of the times that grace is used or charis is used is used by Paul, which is quite ironic. Paul was the most committed person to the law of Moses. He was the up and coming student in Judaism. He was learning from the top professor, Gamaliel, in Jerusalem. And so God takes the person who's the most passionate about the law of Moses and makes him the most passionate about the grace of Jesus. And he gives them the, the assignment and the insight and the understanding of what grace is all about. And Paul writes about grace in Romans. We're no longer under law, but under grace. To us, yeah, that falls on us a certain way. Back then, you're no longer under the law of Moses. You're under grace. That's why they hated him. That's why he was tracked down from the Jerusalem leaders, many of the Jerusalem leaders who hated Paul with a passion. The one who's there to kill Stephen, Paul, and the same group of people who tried to kill Jesus, or who did kill Jesus, they were now after Paul. Paul was being hunted by the people he used to hang out with because of his emphasis on grace, because of his emphasis on the blood of Christ, his emphasis on the cross. We learned so much about grace from Romans. They had deserted grace in Galatia. Um, they were growing in grace in the book of Colossians. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul dives really deeply into grace and what the church is. The church, and he's going to explain this, 
is Communication Center of Grace to the Lost and an Education Center of Grace to the Found. So Paul is writing in Ephesians to establish them more deeply in the truths of grace. That's what we're going to study. Now, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, I love to study things in context. And I know we talk a lot about that as believers. Well, you know, you need to study verses in context. You need to study verses in context. We need to study books of the Bible in context. Where does this book fit in to the overall story of God? Where does this book fit into the Bible? So to really understand Ephesians and understand the story of the Bible and to understand Paul, why he even wrote to the Ephesians, we need to back way up and come forward so that when we get to Ephesians, we're like, oh, okay, I get it now. That makes sense to me. That makes sense. The summary statement of Ephesians is this. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, his purpose is to educate and establish believers, both Jew and Gentile, in the riches of God's glorious grace so they can be united together in one new family of grace called the church. That's the big problem in the book of Acts. That's the big issue going on in the early church, that God was setting aside Judaism and replacing it with the blood of Christ. He was replacing the blood of animals with the blood of Christ. He was, he was replacing the law of Moses with the church, meaning Jew and Gentile in one body apart from the law. That you couldn't bring the law into the church. Leave the law buried in the ground. Don't bring the law into the church. And the Judaizers kept trying to bring the law into the church. And they tried to kick Paul out of the church. So the church is a Jewish person who's come to faith in Christ, a Gentile person who's come to faith in Christ, And now they're brothers and sisters in Jesus. And Paul's going to talk about this because in Ephesus, what's going on is the law is trying to creep back into the church. It was happening in Galatia, and now it's trying to, to happen in Ephesians. Let's look at just some of Paul's emphasis here. Ephesians 1, 6 through 8. Paul says, To the praise of God's glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the beloved. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Grace is the loving kindness of God revealed to us in Jesus to forgive our sins, deliver us from wrath, restore us to life, and bring us into relationship with himself. And we're going to study these verses more. I just was kind of giving us a quick little overview Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live, used to walk when you conformed to the ways of this world and to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. At one time, we all lived among them, fulfilling the cravings of our flesh and indulging its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. That's huge. For somebody to say that in this culture was a lightning rod. They were after Paul. They were trying to kill him for that kind of statement. You have been saved, exclamation point. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might display the surpassing riches of his grace demonstrated by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance as our way of life. Paul was emphasizing grace. Romans, Philippians, here in in Ephesians, he's emphasizing grace. Now, Why does the world need grace? Why the emphasis on grace? Let's take a look. Now we're going to back way up and we're going to come forward to really seeing how Ephesians and how Paul fits in God's overarching story here. So the world's need for grace. A is Adam disconnects from God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, 
he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we were created in the image of God. God is love. We were created to be loved by God and to give love to others. We were created to experience God's love in a relationship and to express his love to others in relationship. That's our purpose for living. Our whole reason for living is to be in, is to be in a love relationship with God. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. But a relationship isn't a relationship unless somebody has the opportunity not to be in the relationship. Other than that, it's just a shotgun wedding, right? If I have a daughter and my daughter wants to marry a certain guy and this guy doesn't want to marry my daughter and I say, honey, hop in the truck and we go to, we go to this guy's house and I say, wait here for just a minute and I go to his door and I say, my daughter, Susie, would like to marry you. Do you want to marry my daughter? And he says, no, I don't want to marry your daughter. So I take my shotgun. I put it right up to him. I said, are you sure you don't want to marry my daughter? And he said, I'd love to marry your daughter. How quickly can we get it done? That's a shotgun wedding. See, that's not God. God does not force anybody into relationship with him. God gives people the opportunity to choose to be in the relationship. And that's what God did in the Garden of Eden. He told Adam, he said, and the Lord God commanded him, you are free. You may eat freely from every tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Why did God put the tree in the garden? Because it became the object where mankind would make a decision of whether we wanted to walk in relationship with God. Did we want to know God, walk in relationship with him? Or did we want to walk and do our own thing and live our own lives and go our own way? Love always gives the opportunity to the, another person to opt out of the relationship because love doesn't control. And so God gave Adam the opportunity, but he, he did tell him the truth. He said, now, if you walk out of this relationship, you will die. That's like a fish being dependent upon the water, that everything the fish needs for life is in the water. And if the water could give the fish an opportunity to leave and say to the fish, hey fish, if you leave me, if you leave this and you get on the shores and you walk out and you, you leave, you will die. That's just honest, loving truth. Because everything the fish needs for life is in the water. Not only is the, does the fish need what's in the water, but the fish needs the water to be in it. The fish in the water and the water in the fish. That's life for the fish. So, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, this is Genesis 3, 6, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, she took the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So now we see that Adam ate of the tree. And by eating of the tree, he died, because God said you would die. What Adam's doing is he's declaring himself independent from God. God, I don't need you. It's the fish leaving the water. And so Adam, in eating of the fruit, walked away from a love relationship with God and walked away from the source of life. He walked away from the source of love, and he walked away from the source of life. And now he was on his own to figure out what life's all about. At this point, sin entered the human race. Sin is mankind declaring himself independent from God. So when sin enters the human race, we see in B, sin brings death and darkness. Paul writes about this in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's through Adam, and death through sin, so death was passed to all men, because all have sinned. Physical death entered the human race. Everybody dies. And spiritual death entered the human race. Disconnection from God. So if a television is plugged in to electricity, and if you unplug the television from the electricity, the TV is going to die. But when we plug it back in, it's got the electricity and it can bring it to life. Man unplugged himself from God in the Garden of Eden. And mankind died. 
is without God. We don't have the source that we need for life, and the source that we need for life is the love of God and the life of God within us. That's why the Bible says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of mankind is having God within us. What's the hope of a basketball that has no air? The hope of the basketball is to get air in it, right? What's the hope of pen that has no ink to get ink in it? That a ball without air and a pen without ink is like a man without God. All are separated from what makes them work. And what ink is to a pen and what air is to a basketball, God is to you and I. What water is within a fish, God is to us. And apart from God, we're dead. And apart from God, we're dark. We have value. We have worth. We have significance. Our lives matter. But apart from God, we're dead. And the Bible says we're also in darkness. Look what Paul says in Romans 1.12. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Futile means, it means to waste something. So it says here that the world, the, the, the people of the world, apart from God, their thinking is futile. It's wasted thought. They're, they're trying to figure out what life's all about. They're trying to come up with what life's all about. And we see it happening all the time on television, people we know, people are trying to think and trying to figure out what's life about. What's my meaning? What's my purpose? And it, it drives so many people. And it says that the person apart from God is futile in their thinking and they're darkened in their foolish hearts. Darkness is the absence of light. They're darkened. They don't know why they exist. They don't know why they're here. They don't know their purpose to life. What's it all about? How did we even get here? These questions people have been trying to answer for ever since mankind was on the earth. Because when mankind disconnected themselves from God and walked away from God, it's like the fish leaving the water. So what's it about? Something's wrong. Something's not right. I know something is wrong and I can't figure it out, but I've got to figure it out. It's kind of like what God did with Solomon. With Solomon, God gave him all the wealth in the world and he gave him all the wisdom in the world. So he's the wealthiest man and the, and the wisest man who was alive at the time. And then he gave him an assignment. He said, Solomon, I'm going to give you all the wisdom and I'm going to give you all the wealth and I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to come back and report to me. He says, here's your assignment. I want you to go into this world with your wealth and your wisdom and report back to me what's the meaning of life. What's the meaning of life? You've got one, that's your one assignment. You've got all the wealth that you need to try to figure out the meaning, and you've got the wisdom to evaluate what your wealth can purchase. So Solomon goes out. Solomon has all the possessions a man can want, all the pleasures a man can want. He has projects in his work. He's pursuing great gain. Everything that he wanted, he got. Nothing that he wanted, he didn't get. But he evaluated everything with wisdom. So he opens up Ecclesiastes with the conclusion. And then he explains his conclusion in the rest of Ecclesiastes. And here's what he concluded with, with his wisdom. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, says the teacher. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Life has no purpose. He said, I spent all the wealth trying to find purpose. With the wisdom, I evaluated it. And underneath the sun, life has no purpose. And then the rest of Ecclesiastes is just the most depressing book there is. You're going to die. Because you're going to die, you might as well just enjoy life. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, hold on a second. There is a God. All right. 
the fish apart from the water is going to come to the same conclusion. I can't find purpose. Something's wrong. Something's not right. And the fish is going to say, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. I cannot find any meaning. And that's the condition of the entire world. Seeking purpose. Why am I here? What's life all about? Trying to find purpose in people, in pleasure, in possessions, in pursuits, and in projects. And at the end of the day, none of them bring life. So mankind became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They don't understand what life's about. They are darkened in their understanding. They have no clue what life's about. And they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They don't even want to know what life's about. Having lost all sense of shame, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with a craving for more. God knew what was going to happen when he gave man the freedom to make a decision. But God also knew what he was going to do to restore man back to a relationship with himself. God promises a savior. God says, I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman. And between your seed, or your off, Satan's offspring, and her seed, he will crush your head, uh, the woman, the woman's offspring will crush Satan's head, but Satan, you will strike his heel. There's a promise that a male child's coming into the human race. It's the first promise. A male child is coming into the human race that's going to crush the head of Satan. Now, the head of a serpent is where the poison is, right? Satan lied to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He was injecting his poisonous lies into their minds. That's why their minds became futile. That's why their hearts became darkened, because they had believed the lies of Satan. And the lie of Satan was this. Eve, did God really say, does God really love you, Eve? Can you really trust God? Does he really have what's best in mind for you? Eve, God is going to ruin your life. Eve, God is restrictive to you that you will never be everything you can be if God is in the picture. So you've got to declare yourself independent from God so that you can be everything that you can be. And so he lies to Adam and he lies to Eve and they buy into the lie. Jesus comes into the human race and he crushes the lies of Satan. Because in the cross of Jesus, we discover that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrates his love for us through Christ dying for us, Romans 5, 8. That the cross is the greatest example of love. It's God telling the human race, I know Satan said that I don't love you, but I love you. And I will go to the cross to bring you in relationship with myself. I will do whatever it takes to bring you into relationship with me. The offspring of Satan? Who is the offspring of Satan? I'm convinced it's the religious system that exists in our world that hates grace. Because grace is the only way a relationship with God could ever be restored. It's the only way. We're, only, we're saved by grace. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And Jesus was full of grace, right? I mean, the prostitutes were coming to him for salvation. The tax collectors were coming to him. I mean, he was just pouring grace upon the broken and the vulnerable and those who were hurting and down and out. And, and the Pharisees are looking at this as like, this doesn't make sense to me. God hates the prostitute. God hates the tax collector. And he tells Nicodemus, oh, no, God so loved the world. He loves the prostitute. He loves the tax collector. He loves the sinful and the broken and the sinner. He tells the story of, of the son, of the prodigal son. So the Pharisees are watching this incredible demonstration of love and grace that Jesus had. And Jesus said something quite remarkable. 
he said to the Pharisees, whose whole goal was to be religious and to be moral, religious activity and morality, that if they could be devoted to the religious activity and they could be devoted to morality, then they would enter into the kingdom of God, which is promised in the Jewish scriptures. This coming kingdom, Jesus is going to usher in a kingdom, the Messiah, where there's no more hurt and pain and heartache. And it's a utopia. And the Pharisees wanted to enter the kingdom. But they knew that only righteous people can enter the kingdom. Therefore, they were going to strive with every ounce of, with all of their effort to enter the kingdom through religious activity and through morality. They were convinced that the prostitute didn't have a chance getting in, nor did the tax collector. And then Jesus says, Matthew 23, he said, The prostitutes and the tax collectors are getting into the kingdom of heaven before you, the Pharisees. That's huge. That Pharisees, I know you think you're getting into the kingdom because of your religious activity and your morality and your so-called obedience to the law of Moses. He says, but I got some bad news for you. You're filthy on the inside. You're dirty on the inside. Yes, you have all your spiritual things going on and you're devoted to your spiritual agenda. But you're filthy on the inside. The prostitute recognized she was filthy. Zacchaeus recognized he was filthy, the tax collector. And they came to Jesus and they just placed their faith in Christ. And the way a person becomes righteous, whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the New Testament, righteousness comes through faith. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. You and I are declared righteous by faith. The prostitute was declared righteous by faith. The tax collector is declared righteous by faith. We cannot do anything to make ourselves righteous. Jesus did everything so that we could be righteous. He took our sinfulness on the cross and he gives us his righteousness. That's grace. Faith receives the very righteousness of Jesus. Jesus looks at the Pharisees who are proud of their spiritual activity and they're proud of their morality And they're looking down upon the the prostitutes and the tax collectors as if they're better than them. And Jesus says this to them in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. That's strong words. Jesus looks at the most religious people in the culture, the Pharisees, who are committed to their spiritual activity. And they're committed to morality. And he tells them, You are of your father. They were the offspring of Satan that John chapter 3 verse 15, uh, uh, Genesis 3 15 talks about. Who is Satan's offspring? Any religious system that says in order to be saved, you have to do something. You have to earn it. You have to work for it. You have to have enough spiritual activity and you have to have enough morality. And if you work hard enough, Long enough, you can be saved. And the cross says so much different. The cross says there's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. Religious activity doesn't get it. Morality doesn't get it. But the cross did it for us completely. And our response to the cross of Jesus, which is grace, is faith. Trust. Belief. And God says you're righteous. You're forgiven. And we'll live in the kingdom forever, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So a male child's coming into the human race who's going to undo everything Satan did and is going to reveal to the world that God really loves us and he's not against us. So I'll read this real quick. God strategically planned for Jesus to come from one nation and shine the light of God's love to every nation on earth. The nation Jesus would come from is Israel. However, at that point in time, Israel was not in existence. So God formed from a man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, starting at Genesis chapter 12, the nation of Israel. And from this nation, Jesus would come to shine the light of God's love and bring God's grace to the world. Isaiah 42, 6. Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, this, this coming child 
who's going to be a king and he's going to reveal God to the world. It says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. So this one that's coming in is going to usher in a new covenant. He's going to bring in a new covenant. He's going to bring in a covenant that requires nothing from us and where everything is given to us. See, the old covenant of law required something from people, right? If you obey me, I will bless you. Required going to the temple. It required the sacrifices. It required baptisms and washings. And it was all kind of requirements under the law of Moses that God required if somebody was going to be right before him. And nobody could ever be right before him under law. The law was just given to show us, show the nation of Israel how wrong they were. So they would look to the coming Messiah for righteousness and for salvation. So this, this one coming into the world would be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. That one was going to come into the human race and who would tell the world who God really is and what God's really like. And he would shine the light and the love and the grace of God to the nations of the world, which means God loves people. And he was going to send someone to convince people of that. Look what Isaiah 49, 6 says. I will also make you a light for the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the heart of God. God knew that the human race was in death. God knew the human race was in darkness. And God said, I'm going to send someone who's going to bring light and who's going to bring life to those who sit in darkness and those who sit in death. And this one's going to come and he's going to shine the light of who God really is to this lost world that God really, really loves. That's going to be an important verse for us to understand Ephesians momentarily. So we're talking about sin came into the world through Adam. Grace came into the world through Jesus. Romans chapter 5 reads this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so also death was passed on to all men because all have sinned. But the gift is not like the trespass. What Jesus was going to bring is a gift. What Adam brought was a result of his own sin. The gift, what Jesus brought, is not like the trespass. different than what Adam did. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many, abounding grace? Again, the gift that Jesus brings is not like the result of one man's sin. And here's the result of one man's sin. The judgment that followed one sin brought condemnation and death. But the gift that followed many trespasses brought justification of being right with God. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more would those who receive, that's going to be a really key word right there, just maybe circle receive, who receive. The gospel is us receiving what Jesus has achieved for us. God is asking us to receive this gift. All right, that's going to be really important. Who receive an abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then just as one trespass brought condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness, that's Jesus dying on the cross, taking our sinfulness, that's that one act of righteousness, brought justification, innocence, not guilty, and life for all men. Jesus took our guilt. He gives us his innocence. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous or right with God. The law came in so that trespass would increase. God gave the law so people would sin more. God did not give the law so that people would sin less. He gave the law so people would sin more. You see it where it says here in 520? The law came in so that sins would increase. Why? Because if I don't know how bad of a sinner I am, then I won't know how much of a savior I need. The law doesn't save us. It points us to the savior. 
So God says, I've got to show the human race how sinful they are, how utterly sinful they are, so they'll look to Jesus for salvation. So the law brings greater sin into the life of a person, so we'll see our great need for Jesus and his grace. But where sin increased all the more as people tried to obey the law, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember what God told Adam. Adam, if you eat of the tree, you will die. A dead man can't bring himself back to life. A dead man needs somebody else to revive him. Jesus in us is what we need. Air in the ball, ink in the pen. Jesus in us. A ball is dead apart from the air. A a pen is dead apart from ink. A mankind is dead apart from the life of God indwelling us. Jesus came to bring life to us that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And we're going to find out just how much he did for us in Ephesians and God's plan. So God chooses Paul to go into the Gentile nations. So all these nations that God wants to bring the light of who he is and the love of who he is and help them think correctly about God and bring the light to them so they're no longer in darkness, God chooses Paul, the one who was the most passionate about the law, and now he's going to send him out to share grace. A is Jesus sends Paul to the Gentile world. Paul, he's actually, we'll look at this in context later, but Paul is actually speaking to the elders of the Ephesians church that he started on his second missionary journey. He's speaking to them. And as he's speaking to the elders, he says, I consider my life of no value to me. If I only may finish my course and complete the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, the ministry of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So who gave Paul his ministry? The ascended Jesus, right? The ascended Jesus only discipled one person. That was Paul. That's why Paul writes most of the letters that we find in the New Testament. That's why the word grace is used more by Paul than anybody else. Of the 150 times it's used, the majority are by Paul. Because he got from Jesus, look what this says, this ministry, Paul says, that I've received... From the Lord. And here's the ministry of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Jesus gave Paul a specific ministry of sharing with people the message of grace. He would go start churches in Gentile cities, which would become communication centers of grace to the lost and education centers of grace to the found. And that was God's strategy. Jesus, in this Paul's writing, or he's actually, when he's being uh, by one of the kings that he had to go before, as he, he was arrested, he's sharing his testimony. And in his testimony, he says this. He's quoting Jesus, and Jesus says, I will rescue you. And he's quoting Jesus when Jesus was actually talking to Paul. I will rescue you from your own people, that's the Jews. And Paul, I will, I will also rescue you from the Gentiles. And I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive, circle that word receive there, it's a huge word again, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified or made holy by faith in me. So we receive forgiveness through faith in Jesus and we're made holy through faith in Jesus. I don't make myself holy. I can't make myself holy. One of the big things that we're going to see that's significantly different in Paul's message that you don't find in other parts of Scripture, because remember, Paul's bringing in a new message it's, it's grace. It's this ministry of grace that Jesus has given Paul. It's this idea, not this idea, this truth that God is the one asking people to receive forgiveness. And by faith in Christ, we receive forgiveness. 
Now, here's how that changed my life. I always thought God was waiting on me to ask him to forgive me. And so for up until I was 24 years old, I was constantly asking God to forgive me. Because I thought God required me to ask him to forgive me if I was going to be forgiven. That's what I had been taught. Make sure all your sins are confessed because if they're not confessed, then you're not forgiven. And if you're not forgiven, you're out of fellowship with God. So now I'm relating to God based upon the conduct of Brad rather than the cross of Jesus. And I better remember every sin because if one unconfessed sin and one unforgiven sin exists, I'm walking around thinking I'm in fellowship with God, but in reality, I'm out of fellowship with God. Because to be honest with you, you and I have sinned so many more times than any sins we confess. So if God is waiting on us to confess all our sins so that we can be forgiven and be in fellowship with him, then he's going to be waiting on it for eternity because we can't do it. That's why the message is not, hey, ask God to forgive you. That's not the gospel. There's no good news in that. Oh, gosh, have I confessed all my sins? Have I done enough? Is, am I right? Am I in fellowship? Am I out of fellowship? Am I, am I righteous? Am I justified? Am I innocent or not innocent? I, I don't know. The gospel is this. God's given us the gift of forgiveness. Remember, we, we read the word gift in Romans chapter 5, probably four or five times a while ago. It's the gift of grace. And in this gift is forgiveness, is righteousness, is holiness, is justification. And God gives the gift. We don't ask God to give us, we, don't, we didn't ask God to give us grace. We didn't ask God to give us, he's asking us to receive the gift. Now think about this. When a gift is given, the person who receives the gift and who opens the gift contributed not a nickel to purchasing the gift. If he did, it's not a gift. Somebody else purchased the gift. And somebody else brings the gift. And somebody else asked that person to receive the gift. And the person receiving the gift, by faith, opens it up. And the person giving the gift wants the person receiving the gift to enjoy the gift that's been given. See, God's given us the gift of righteousness, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of a holy standing before him that was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. And he's not waiting on you or me to ask him to forgive us. I certainly didn't ask Jesus to die. He didn't wait, on, he didn't wait for me to ask Jesus to die on the cross, right? He didn't wait on any of us to say, Gee, we need somebody to die on the cross. We're going to ask you to send Jesus to die for us. No, it wasn't our idea. We were in the darkness. We had foolish thinking. It never would have occurred to us. But it occurred to Jesus, to the Father. So he purchased for you and me the ultimate gift of forgiveness, of righteousness, of life, and eternal life. And he says, Paul, I want you to go to this dark Gentile world and I want you to go into the city of Ephesus and I want you to go into the cities of Galatia and I want you to go into the city of Philippi and I want you to go into the city of Thessalonica. I want you to go into all these Roman cities and these people have no clue of who I am. They're worshiping all kind of crazy gods. They're in the darkness and their, their thinking is foolish and I want you to go in them to them, and I want you to ask them to receive my forgiveness. Because every religion that the Roman world had was a system of achieving. Every religion. System of achieving, a system of works, a system of somehow trying to gratify this, this angry God and work hard enough and do enough so that this God doesn't crush us. And God, God says, that's not who I am. I want you to go to them and I want you to tell them what Jesus did for them. And I want you to ask them to receive by faith forgiveness. And somewhere along the way, religion crept into Christianity. And all of a sudden we're telling people, you need to ask God to forgive you. No, that's not some scripture. It's not there. It's in a lot of legalistic circles of Christianity. 
but it's not in Scripture. What's in Scripture is this. Receive my forgiveness through faith in my son. Well, when we do that, how much are we forgiven? 100% for the rest of our lives. It's a gift. Let's, let's see how this works itself out. So Paul goes on his first missionary journey, goes into Galatia. He's at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, and he quotes Isaiah 49.6. Paul says, this is what the Lord has commanded us, Paul and his companions, uh, companions. I have made you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul gets that assignment from Jesus. It was originally given to Israel, specifically to Jesus, and now Jesus is handing this baton to Paul. And Paul's going into the Roman Empire and to all these cities to shine the good news of salvation to these people, and it's salvation that comes by grace. All right, that's what Paul's doing. So he goes into to Pisidian Antioch in Galatia, and he's, he goes to the synagogue, which is where he normally goes, and he goes to the synagogue. And the synagogue rulers begin to realize who's in their midst. Hey, do you know Paul's here? Paul's sat under Gamaliel. Paul's the top student under the law. This, this guy knows what he's talking about. Let's let him speak today. They had no idea he'd come to faith in Jesus. They had no idea he was passionate about grace. They thought he was still passionate about the law. So they go to Paul. Hey, why don't you just talk to our people today? You're a great teacher. You have a great reputation. Why don't you talk to our people? So he stands up before them, and it's an amazing, amazing piece of teaching by Paul. He starts off with the history of Israel, goes through Abraham and Sarah, goes through Moses, goes through this promised one that's supposed to come, and he finally gets to it and says, hey, the promised one that's supposed to come, he's come. And his name is Jesus, and he was crucified, and he was resurrected from the dead, And then he says exactly what Jesus told him to say. He says this. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Notice what Paul's not doing here. He's not saying, hey, you need to ask God to forgive you. He's not saying that at all. He's proclaiming the best news in the world that your sins have been paid for in Christ. And God's not waiting on you to ask him to forgive you of sin. He's waiting on you to accept by faith the forgiveness he's freely offering you in Christ. That's salvation. And somehow in the middle of that message, religion comes along in its legalism and says, Oh yeah, you you can be forgiven of all sins but you still have to keep asking for forgiveness. That's just not in Scripture. And here we go, trying to stay forgiven, trying to stay in fellowship, trying to stay right, trying to stay innocent. We're trying to work for what's free, right? And through faith in Jesus, everyone who believes is justified or made innocent, proclaimed not guilty from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Imagine saying that in a synagogue of a group of people whose family tradition goes back 1,500 years to seeking justification under the law of Moses. And suddenly somebody stands up and says, you're wasting your time if you're trying to be justified by the law. Because now forgiveness and justification doesn't come from Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy or any of the Jewish scriptures. Righteousness and forgiveness is freely given to you and you simply receive it by faith and you do absolutely nothing. They hated Paul. But the people who didn't hate him was the ordinary normal people. The average everyday prostitute 
and the tax collector who loved Jesus, these people love Paul too. You're regular old folks. And so they go out into Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13, and they, before they, they say, hey, Paul, will you come back next Sabbath? Will you come back next Sabbath and will you share the message of grace again? Will you, will you teach us about grace again? And when they show up the next Sabbath, here's what Scripture says. Nearly the entire town was at the synagogue to hear the message of grace. No strategic campaign. It just tells us what the power of the gospel does in any city. That when the gospel of grace is proclaimed, people will invite people who will invite people who will invite people to come hear that message because you can't find it in many places. It's ask God to forgive you, ask God to forgive you, ask God to forgive you, stay in fellowship, stay in fellowship. Here's the spiritual disciplines, follow all the disciplines. It's Jesus, it's the blood of Jesus. It's the cross. It's the resurrection. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, he said, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law of Christ, died for nothing. If, my, if forgiveness can be gained through me asking, then what's Jesus doing on the cross? Because I can ask for forgiveness apart from the cross. They could do that in the Old Testament. I mean, God had a plan for that in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, then I'll forgive their sins and cleanse their land. That's not our verse. That was conditional forgiveness. That was before the cross. Our verse is this. Hey, I'm giving you forgiveness and you receive it by faith. And when you receive it, it's yours. It's the best message in the world. And so in Acts 13, you have all these people coming back into Galatia. And they want to hear the good news of grace. It's an amazing, amazing piece of uh, historical truth there. Acts 15, you see the big debate where we say by law or grace or a combination. After much discussion, Peter got up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles, and he's talking about Acts chapter 10, would hear from my lips the message of the gospel and belief. And God, who knows the heart, showed his approval by giving the Holy Spirit to them, Acts, to, to, the, to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, just as he did to us, the Jews, Acts chapter 2. And he has made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles. For God cleansed their hearts, how? By faith. Acts 26 Paul was told by Jesus, go share this message. And people who put their faith to me, in me, they're sanctified or their hearts are cleansed. They're made pure. They're made holy by the, my, by the blood of Christ. He cleansed their hearts by faith. How is your heart, heart cleansed? Your heart, my heart is not cleansed by constantly confessing sin. Because if there's one sin that I miss, my heart's dirty, right? But all of my sins and all of your sins were paid for by Christ on the cross. God is not counting your sins against you. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. All your sins were counted against Christ. And he didn't miss any. So I don't have to spend my life trying to confess my sins so I can stay clean before God. I live my life knowing I'm clean before God because Jesus paid for all my sins. And I place my faith. And my heart now has been cleansed through faith in Jesus. It's his blood that cleanses my heart. Confession is admitting, okay, I'm a sinner. And I'm accepting by faith the blood of Christ that cleanses me from sin. And when I place my faith in Christ, he says, you're clean, you're justified, you're righteous, you're forgiven forever. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what the world needs to hear. So Peter says, now then, why do you test God by placing the, uh, on the necks of the disciples a yoke? That's the law of Moses that neither we, the Jews, nor our fathers, all those who came before us, have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we Jews are saved just as they are the Gentiles. How is anybody saved? Jew or Gentile? By grace, through faith in Jesus. Period. What does it mean to be saved? 
That means that I'm clean before God. I'm righteous before God. I'm innocent before God. I'm justified. Christ now lives in me. I'm holy before God. Salvation. That's the message God wants to go to all the world. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by our works, so that no one can boast. And then B, we're not going to go through all the verses, but Paul confirms in his letters that he was sent to the Gentiles. Uh, the first verse, Romans 1, 5 through 6, Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, that's people all over the world who weren't Jews, to the obedience that comes from faith for his, uh, for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 3, 8, down a few verses. Paul says, although I'm, the less than, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ Jesus. That's the heart of God. What does God want you and me to know? He wants you and I to know the riches of the grace of God that's been given to us in Christ. He's not after you and me to fulfill some kind of religious checklist, to practice some spiritual discipline so that we can be right with him. He wants you and I to know the riches of the cross, the riches of his blood, what the wealth that is ours in Christ. He wants you and I to know it and understand it. That's, what was, that's Paul's ministry here. To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And Paul says, and for this purpose, he's writing to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. And I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. A true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So as we go down, it says, God setting aside Paul from his mother's womb to proclaim the salvation message about Jesus among the Gentile nations was a, part of, a major part of God's strategic plan to reach the world with grace. It was Paul who planted churches in Gentile cities, including Ephesus, to shine the light of Jesus to the people in those cities. In our study of Ephesians, we will look closely at the message of grace Paul proclaimed among the Gentiles, making grace crystal clear. In 1922, Louis Berry Schaefer, a highly respected Bible teacher in his time and founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, stated in his book, Grace and Exposition of God's Marvelous Gift, the following. The exact and discriminate meaning of the word grace should be crystal clear to every child of God. With such insight only can he feed his soul on the exhaustible, inexhaustible riches which unfolds. And with such understanding only can he be enabled clearly to pass on to others its marvelous, transforming theme. About grace, Lewis Berry Schaefer says, this is page 19 of his book. When used in the Bible to set forth the grace of God and the salvation of sinners, the word grace not only discloses the boundless goodness and kindness of God toward humanity, but reaches far beyond the, and indicates the supreme motive which actuated God in the creation, preservation, and consummation of the universe. What greater fact could be expressed by one word, grace? Making the message of grace crystal clear to every child of God is the purpose of our study here in, uh, on Ephesians. In my prayers through our study on Ephesians, we will understand more fully the meaning of grace so that we can feed our soul on its riches and pass, pass its transform, transforming truths on to others. Grace was a word that, I've, that I heard for many years as a believer. And I could define grace as God's unmerited favor, but I didn't know the favor that was unmerited. I'd sung Amazing Grace a thousand times, but I had no idea why grace was so amazing. The acronym grace for grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. I'd been taught that, but I had no idea what the riches were that came at Christ's expense. I could define grace, but I had no idea the depths of grace. And it was only when the Holy Spirit allowed me to discover the depths of His grace that I experienced life change as a believer. And since 1990, I've been able to share the gospel of grace with, with thousands of people. And I'm talking about Christians, people who've been Christians for most of their lives. And as they begin to study Ephesians and Romans and Galatians, I watch believers 
I, I can watch it. I can, you can see it. The Holy Spirit begins taking the truths of grace that are flowing from Scripture and begins to transform the lives of believers as they sit in chairs. They do nothing. There's, they don't practice a discipline. There's no spiritual activity. They're only hearing and listening to the truth of the gospel. And as the truth of the gospel comes, it's unbelievable what the Holy Spirit does in the heart of a believer who hears the gospel of grace in its pure, undiluted message. And Christ did it all. 